0: Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information visit us at UpperRoom.ca
1: Good morning. As you already heard my name is Dave and I'll have the pleasure of reading the scripture this morning for you. Um, We're reading from Luke 15 chapters 11 to 32. And I'm just going to sit down, I'm a little sore from the men's retreat, so bear with me. So Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my shares of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living.
2: Well, we are uh, just coming to an end, as, as we have mentioned a couple of times, in a series we've been in called Reach. And uh, it's really about kind of us as a church asking God, God, what do you want to do in us and through us in this city? We're just passing our 11th year, uh, kind of around this weekend, actually. Oh, yeah. Junior high kids, you can go. Nobody else can leave. Okay. Um, and, uh, and, and because part of the role of the church is to say, God, what, what, we're, we planted here in this city to make a difference in the city, to make a difference in the world around us. And so how do you want us to do that? And so we've been talking about really actually these last few weeks saying, well, what does it mean to be the church? Uh, because depending on what you grew up or your faith background or whatever, you may think, well, church is a place you go. Or, or church is an institution, uh, uh, maybe, and maybe an antiquated one, or maybe one that used to have relevance or there's history, or it's, it's some kind of, it's a social organization, But actually, the scriptures speak about the church totally differently because they speak about God in ways that are totally different than what we would expect. And part of what we have been asking, you know, when Jesus came to earth, he was talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And he wasn't talking about this future reality someday, one day, or something up there in the sky. When he talked about the kingdom of heaven, he said the world according to God. In other words, there is a reality all around you that you can't see with your physical eyes, but is more real than what you can see around you. And part of what he was trying to explain to people and all the ways that Jesus taught and the things he said, the things he did, the way he treated people, the way he healed, and the way he performed miracles was to describe to them, look, the kingdom of heaven is more real than you ever thought. And here's how the world is supposed to work according to God. And one of the things that it says is is that every one of us, every one of us, Regardless of the country you came from, regardless of your skin color, regardless of your ethnic background, regardless of your social status, regardless of your life stage, regardless of your age, regardless of whether you would consider yourself a religious person or not or a follower of Jesus or not, that every one of us, in a sense, has a longing inside of us for home. It's why we use phrases like, I felt like a fish out of water. Like, I felt like I didn't belong there. In a sense that every one of us is looking for a place where we go, "Ah, oh, this is where I was meant to be. This is who I was meant to be. We sometimes use that language when we talk about maybe the job that we have or the family that we're in. Some of us are saying, "I just don't feel like I, ever, I fit in my family. Like I feel like a, a black sheep or just an odd one out. Like I just didn't feel like even though I was home, that I wasn't home. Sometimes in, in, even our family is the place that causes us the greatest hurt. And you know why? I think part of that is because we know in a sense in our core what it's supposed to be like at home. And yet sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's hurtful. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's broken. Sometimes it's challenged. Sometimes it's stressful. And there's something about us that feels like, ah, this, is what, this isn't what home was supposed to be, because I know there's something in me that longs for it. And one of my favorite authors, he wrote, um, uh, he's made famous by the Narnia Chronicles, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobes named C.S. Lewis. I think probably one of the most influential writers and thinkers uh, of our, of, uh, not our time, of the 20th century. He said this, <clears throat> Apparently then, Our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, to be on the inside of some door we have always seen from the outside, is no mere neurotic fancy. Listen, it is the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all merits and also the healing of that old ache. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. It's a description of actually what the scriptures tell us about who God is and therefore what it means to be the church. And that's this, that God is a father who is constantly inviting us home. God is a father who is constantly inviting us home. The story that Dave read for you, maybe you've heard it before, maybe it's the first time you've ever heard it. It's a story, and it's got three characters in it. There's a father, and then there's an older brother and a younger brother. And as the story kind of plays out, it begins to tell us things that, quite frankly, even if we've been in the church a long time, are stunning. They were stunning to Jesus' original hearers, and so he told profound truths in stories so that somehow it would kind of go around our intellect because many of us have so many intellectual objections to God and what about this and what about that and Jesus used to tell stories because this one person says a, a good story or a piece of art sort of bypasses the intellect and just goes directly to the heart. And Jesus tells a story about three characters. He tells about a father and an older brother and a younger brother. And in the story as it unfolds, both for us but even more so for Jesus' original hearers, the younger brother does the unthinkable younger brother does the unthinkable. He goes to his father and he says, father, and we, we would imagine that this, this father had sort of a, 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 a fairly decent amount of property. And as the younger brother, he would have been entitled to a, probably a third of the whole thing. Um, the, the older brother, they call it this practice of primogeniture where the first child is the one who was the favored one. And we kind of know, and Jesus sort of uh, kind of upended that whole cultural system as we read the rest of scripture. But in ancient times, that was just the way it was. The oldest son, basically, because they were going to become the future head of the household and run the family business or whatever, which was probably uh, a farm or something like that. And so, but the older brother had a third of what he was going to get when his father would pass away. And it, and it wasn't like money that they had tied up in savings or whatever. It was all in the property. So the only way to get it would be you know, when, the, when the father died and, and they either sold the property or the older brother would buy him out. But he comes to their father and he says, I want my share now. It was a stunning request because basically it meant that the father was going to have to sell a third of their property. And they probably lived in some kind of. They don't live in these sort of row houses separated from each other. Like it was, was nobody was interested in detached homes right now. Okay, so back then, if you had like a a townhome or like semi, like you were living, if you were detached, something's wrong with you, right? Uh, Because you lived in community with people, and so there would have been probably like an outer wall that would have surrounded kind of a larger village, and people living in homes within that, and livestock, and and. um, uh, gardens and farms and land and all kind of in that. So this family would have been part of a broader family of relatives and just people that they had grown up with. And so the father would actually have to sell a third of his land, so basically divest and, and, and sell it to somebody else so he could give his younger son the money. So that was an offensive request to begin with, but really what it would have meant under the surface, especially to that culture, was, Dad, I'm not interested in you. I'd prefer if you were dead so I could get the money, but since you're not, I'm just going to ask for it now. I don't really care about you. I just want your stuff. I just want what's mine. And so the younger son makes this stunning request. And he takes the money, and he goes off, and it says he went away and just blew it all. You know, the one-armed bandits probably and went to Windsor or something like that. And they just, like, blew it all in Casino. We don't really know. just wild living. It's just basically a description of kind of giving it away, using it up, having a good time, and then basically it was gone. And he gets to, and then it says the famine comes, and he gets to such a low point that for a Jew, because for a Jewish person, a pig was an unclean animal. So for a Jewish person to be taking a job feeding pigs is like this description of, it was absolutely as low as it could possibly go for this young man. And he's sitting there, nothing to eat, almost thinking I should eat the stuff that the pigs are eating. So for a Jewish person, his Jewish audience would have been listening going, that's disgusting and that's offensive to God and everything, and this son's already done. And they were probably thinking, you know what? This guy's getting what he deserved. How dare he do that? But then Jesus goes on in the story. He says, well, he came to his senses and he thought this. He thought, you know what, my father's hired hands at least have food to eat. Now, the hired hand was different than a servant. A hired hand wouldn't live in the home. Servants would have lived in the home. A hired hand would have lived somewhere else in the village but would have come in every day to do work. So he's thinking, you know what, I know I could never get back in the home. I know I could never have the place of son. I couldn't even have a servant. But if I could get a hired hand job, I'm just gonna get a job and offer myself out as a laborer. I know the way my father treats the people in his household. I know he's good. I know he's fair. So I'm just gonna go and try to do that. So he starts to walk home. So this is a son doing the unthinkable. First of all, um, wishing his father was dead, taking the money, blowing it all, and then thinking he can kind of come back home. Now, if the listeners were kind of paying attention, they would think, okay, this is a big village. People are out all the time. A long way off, they're going to see this son. They're probably thinking, man, this guy has nerve coming home. And who knows what he's going to say. But even more unthinkable than what the younger brother does is is what the father does. And this is where his listeners would, the jaws would have started to drop. It said, the father, while he was a long way off, saw his son. And when he saw him a long way off, he would know one thing. This guy blew it all. He's got no wife, no kids, no livestock around him. If he had taken that money, made something for himself, you know, so some coming home with grandchildren who would have taken over the business and children who would have, were a blessing in those days because if, if you didn't have children, who was going to look after you? when there was no old age pension, old age security. So here his son's coming back who was supposed to look after him with the money that he would have taken over for the family business. That's gone. The son doesn't have a wife. He doesn't have any kids. So no one's going to look after him. And he has no livestock. In other words, he's turned his money into nothing. And here he comes home. So the father sees that while well, he's a long way off. He begins to run to him. And, you know, we sort of think, oh, that's so nice. Everybody else in the village and everybody else listening to the story would have thought, that's unbelievable. First of all, older men didn't run. You would have had to pull your cloak up and bare your legs. You know what? I won't demonstrate here. We saw some white legs yesterday when we were outside at the playing baseball. So he's gathering up his robe and running out to meet his son. No good self-respecting Near Eastern older man would have shown kind of recklessness like that. And then he throws his arms around the sun and kisses him. The people watching in, in this fictitious story, but the ones really in the real story listening, would have just, this is unthinkable. And then the younger son, you can imagine if you're in that place, you start to kind of get yourself together. You can't even believe your father's acting like this. So maybe he's crying or he's just kind of forgot what he's going to say. And he remembers the speech. Oh yeah, father, I have this plan. I know I've sinned against heaven and I, and I have sinned against you. And I have, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. I, I know I can't come home. But if you would just have, and the father just cuts him off and says, you know, he yells. You can imagine him like kind of yelling to the household, get the fatted calf the fattened calf was the one animal you kept, you kept growing till it was really big and you saved it for a really big occasion. It could feed probably a hundred people if you killed it. And so when he says, get the fattened calf, it's gonna be a party for the whole village. And then he says, bring the best robe, which would have been his own robe. Put a ring on his finger for my son is home. In one moment, the father, in a sense, erases everything. Doesn't even hear the "I'm sorry" speech. Just says, "You're home. You're home." And let's throw a party. The father does the unthinkable. People in listening, I mean, we kind of go, "Oh, that's a nice story." People listening to Jesus would have said, "This is there's something wrong with it. You can't treat a he disrespected an, an elder person." He disrespected his father. He blew his portion of the family business, comes back with nothing and, and, and he's a son again? He should be killed. That's what they would have thought. And the father would have been honorable to do it, to kill him. Instead he welcomes him home. They throw a party. You know, Dance Mix Volume 4 is pumping out. <laughs> the disco ball, whatever, the elder brother. You know, the younger brother does the unthinkable, the father does the unthinkable. The older brother we see doesn't know the father and doesn't love the younger brother. He comes in, and you can imagine him going here in the house and hearing the mm 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 going on. He's like, ask the servant, what's happening in there? He says, oh, there's a party going on. Why? Oh, well, your, your younger brother is home and your father's throwing a party, and he welcomed him back, and he killed the fattened calf. And so the older brother would have known at that point, like this was a full-on party for my younger brother who burned everything in his home now. And it says he seethed with anger, and he refused to go in. Well, the father finds out about this, and he comes out to the older brother, and he says, Like, what's the matter? How come you're not coming in? He says, listen, you know what? I have slaved for you all these years, and you never even gave me a goat to have a party with my friends, which we know is false because it said he divided his property between them when the whole story started. So the older brother had already been given everything. He was the owner. And yet he says to the father, I slaved for you, and you never gave me anything as much as a goat. Now this useless brother of mine who squandered his money on prostitutes, like he knew what he did, he didn't know, He's home and you killed a fattened calf for him. And the father, you know, again, this would have been, you know, the, the father should have been indignant at being spoken to like that by his son. Instead, he, he pleads with him. He says, son, just come in. You know, your younger brother, he was lost. And in fact, it's like he was dead. The older brother saying, Yeah, he should have been dead to you. He said, but, but he's alive again. He's back. He's found. And he pleaded with the older brother to come into, to come home to the party. And strangely, the story ends right there. We don't know whether the older brother actually came in at all. And Jesus was making this point, in a sense, this story, because in his audience were older brothers and younger brothers. There were those who the religious system of that day and the social systems of that day have said, because of how you act, you're out. There were tax collectors who were Jewish people who had basically become turncoats and were collecting taxes for Rome and taking a lot off the top as well. And so they were greedy and they were cheats. and they were, These were the people starting to come to Jesus. And all the religious people were like, no, 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 no. You don't get to come to him. You, you don't get to seek God as if you're interested in God. Get away. Women of ill repute would come to Jesus, come, want to sit with him and learn from him. The fact that a woman would want to sit and learn from him was, they, people thought that day women couldn't even learn anyway. But the fact that these kinds of people would come, they were, they, were, they were offended at the kind of people were coming to Jesus and they were offended at the way Jesus was welcoming them. And so it says he told this story because there were younger brothers, people coming home, and older brothers saying they don't deserve to be home. And so Jesus told the story. In a sense, he was kind of trying to describe what, uh, and Timothy Keller, who wrote a book on this, just put it into words that sort of, sort of changed my perspective on this entirely. He said, it's really describing two ways to find your happiness in life. There are those of us who are irreligious. You can go your own way, right? You just, I'm just going to do my own thing. I don't care about what my family says. I don't care about what religion says. I don't care about what other people think. I'm just going to do my own thing. It's my money. It's my life. It's my time. It's my thing. And that would describe many of the attitudes of our culture. So to make your own way, be your own person, independent, do what you want. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. You decide for yourself. Whatever's right for you is right for you. Just live your own way. And, and there's that, that's one way to find your happiness. Say, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And I'm going to decide. I'm going to try to be a good person on the way. Try not to wreck anybody. But I'm just going to do what I need to do. Because that's how I'm going to find my happiness. And then there are those that are religious, who in a sense follow the moral code of the moral authority. And maybe, maybe it's of a religious system, or maybe it's just the, moral, uh, the morals or the rules of your family that you grew up in and what was acceptable and what was not, or just what's, what's right. And so there are those kinds of people that say, well, happiness comes by following the rules and doing what you're supposed to do, and then you know, you'll get what you're supposed to get. And this describes the older brother and the younger brother, right? The younger brother said, just give me my money, I want to go do my own thing. And the older brother, we find, was just as interested in getting rewards as the younger brother was, he just thought he would do it differently. So he says to his father, I've slaved for you. He he didn't see himself as a son at all, he saw himself as a servant, making his money, getting his reward at the end of it. There's two ways to find your happiness, to be religious and to be a religious. And Jesus is saying, but the father actually invites both to come home. The father has a different way of finding happiness than just doing your own thing or being a morally good, upstanding, observant person. Into the home, the father invites both, the religious and the irreligious. And I was thinking, you know, the two sons, don't they kind of describe much of the conflict that we have in our world? Right? Like there are people who go out and do whatever they want, And then there's others who judge them for doing it. In fact, many of the wars, world wars, civil civil wars, race wars, come because one group says, we're going to do this. and Another group says, you shouldn't do that. And so they judge them and they think it's up to us to actually judge you and punish you for what you've done. And all it does is create more conflict and more violence. Some of the things we're reading in the newspaper lately, some people thinking, hey, we need to do this. We were mistreated. We're going to do this. Other people saying, you shouldn't do that. and Our entire election platforms get turned into this, right? You did this, judging each other. Elder brother, younger brother, back and forth. It explains so much of the conflict that we have in the world. in a sense to say, actually, it's no way to find happiness. Just do your own thing. Many of us could say, yeah, that's kind of me. You know what? I've just sort of done my own thing. I didn't really want to do what other people told me to do. I didn't want to do what religion told me to do. I didn't want to do what my parents told me to do, so I just did my own thing. And sometimes that works for a little while, but maybe you've had those experiences where you think, I actually didn't turn out to be the kind of happiness that I thought I would have. And then there's other people, which I actually think are the most miserable people in the world who are religiously observant, <laughs> cutting themselves off from any kind of fun, but not actually receiving any joy from it. Having attitudes like the older brothers. It says, I'm just slaving away. I'm just doing this to get mine someday, one day. And Jesus says, Neither of those ways to live will find happiness. Neither of those ways will save you. The church, you know, historically has kind of been like the older brother. That's many, how many people see religion in general. It's just wagging its finger at what culture's doing wrong, what people are doing wrong. Maybe some of you stopped going to church a long time ago because you felt like every time I go, they're just telling me what I, shouldn't, what I should and shouldn't do and that I should come more often. Can't you just be happy I'm here? <laughs> Older brother. And friends, I believe, and it's one of the things that has made me uh, want to be a part of a church, a new church, like 11 years ago when we started, is that I believe that many people have walked away from a God they've never encountered because the church has basically been like an elder brother in their life. Basically wagging its finger and they think, that's who God is. Jesus says, it's not who God is at all. It's the same, and you know what, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, at least a 2,000-year-old problem because the same thing was happening right in front of Jesus' nose. He said there were people coming to him wanting to know that this is who God is, and the God people were saying, you don't belong, you don't belong, you don't belong, God would never accept you. And Jesus is saying, okay, I need to get this right. In fact, that's why I came, because there's so many distorted pictures of who God is, so let me tell you what he's really like. Tim Keller, when he wrote a book on this, named it, rightly, the prodigal God. You know, some of our older translations, or maybe when you heard the the story first, it was called the prodigal son. Prodigal means reckless spender. And so even the church, in a sense, looked at this story and said, oh, yeah, it's about the reckless spending younger brother, and he comes home. And it's a good thing, because he needed to get his act together. But Jesus was actually telling stories primarily for people who were like the older brother, who refused to come in. In fact, if you think about this, at the end of the story, who was in? Was it the religious, upright person? No. Who who had actually come home and received the Father's love? Was it the morally observant person, the person who had been faithful all their lives, doing everything right? No. It should actually scare us to death that it's possible in a sense to have a life that looks good, that looks squeaky clean, that does all the right things. And at the end, Jesus is saying, he left the story cut off. We don't actually know whether the older brother ever comes home. It's like he was inviting the religious and the morally judgmental people around him to say, pay attention, you who think you're in. You may not actually be in at all. You think you know God? The older brother refusing to come into the love of god the one who in a sense made a mess of his life was already at the table home and that's why keller named his book the prodigal god <laughs> the reckless spending god jesus says god is like this so reckless with his grace so lavish with his love to all people doesn't matter whether you're irreligious or religious. no matter how you try to get there. There's no stairway to heaven. So it doesn't matter if you think you've blown your chances or you think, oh yeah, I've been climbing my whole life. Jesus says to the religious, the irreligious, the two ways to find your own happiness, there's another way. And the Father is the reckless spender of grace that invites us all home. Isn't it scary that the older brother, though he was close to home his whole life, didn't know the father at all, thought he was a hard man, didn't understand, and in the end, refused to come home. Should make everyone in the church kind of stand up straight. Friends, we have an opportunity as the church to both be people who enter into the father's love and then invite others to come home. Because how do you know God is like this? You know, you may have heard this story before. Even as you heard it, going, "Oh, yeah, well, that's it's a nice story." We sang all those songs earlier about God being love. God is love. was my time. God is love. How do you know God is love? Someone asked me once, "How do you how do you know God is who you say He is?" So we talked a little bit about, "Well, did the earth come from nothing or something?" And I, my my thing is, look, I don't, I'm not, I didn't study science. But if you came home today and there was a whole new house built on your property, brand new, twice the size, everything finished, and you said, who made this? And somebody said to you, nobody. It's just chance. Things crash together and you have a new home. Would you ever accept that explanation for how, the world, how you got here or your house? Why would you ever accept it for how the world got here? So I'm like, oh, fine. I remember talking to one of my business colleagues years ago. and said, Okay, fine, fine, fine. I could give you that maybe something. Something created the world. But how do you know it's God? How do you know it's, it's a loving God? So I go, okay, well, we'll look, at, look at, you know, if you, if you looked at Van Gogh's paintings. And you said, oh, who painted this? And I showed you a paintbrush. You say, that doesn't make sense. Well, why? Well, because, you know, there's, there's way more in this art than is in this paintbrush. So it's just paint. There's story in here. And when Van Gogh started to paint his potato farmers and all this stuff, you know, was going wacky with his life, you could see it in his art. I mean, the painter is infinitely more complex than the artwork. Something simple doesn't create something complex. Something complex, like a human being, like a universe, has to be created by something even more complex, even more relational, even more real. Okay, fine. But I know all this stuff. And the truth is, we wouldn't unless Jesus had come and told us this is who got it. You really can't know, even though we want to believe with all of our hearts that all of religion, in a sense, got it wrong. Every religion, doesn't matter, Christian or otherwise, and that this is right. We want to believe it with all of our hearts There's a place called home and that there's a God like that who would recklessly spend his grace and love to forgive us and bring us home. But how would we know unless his son came and said, this is how it is in my father's house? But Jesus didn't just say it. He did it. He who was actually home left his home to come to you and I who are wandering around, maybe near but not in or far away, and to bring us home. And if God is the prodigal God, Jesus is the older brother that we all really needed. Jesus is the true older brother because a true, righteous, gracious older brother who was like his father should have done this to the older son, the younger son. He should have been welcoming him. Because you know why the older brother was mad? Because who owned the fatted calf that was now being killed? The older brother. It was all his stuff. And he's mad that now all of his stuff is being spent on his useless younger brother. He didn't want any cost to himself to go out to this younger brother. But our elder brother, which the scriptures describe Jesus as that, left home and gave himself away all that he had to bring you and I home. Jesus is the elder brother, the true, righteous, good, merciful, loving elder brother that says, this is how it is in my father's house. You can come home. That's what it means to be the church. It's people who recognize this is who God is. This is the home that he's given us. I believe it's a different story in this day that the church is meant to write and tell right? It's a story that the world doesn't know that this is who God is. How are they going to know unless God's people who are home go out and say, this is who God really is. He's not like the older brother. He's someone different. Well, how do you know? Because Jesus said it and Jesus did it. And so my encouragement to you, you know, maybe this is your first day in church or your first day in a long time or your first day in this church. Maybe you've been here and we say you're part of the woodwork, even though we don't have woodwork here is that you would know this, this is my story too. Whether I was the person who sort of always tried to do it right and be right and judged other people, or I'm someone who felt like I made a mess of my life that no one would ever kind of call me home, that this is my story that the Father invites me into. And that I'm actually supposed to go out and bring other people home with me. This is our calling as a church, to come home and to bring someone else with you. It's what it means to be the church. It's why we have to go out and tell people. It's why we got to plant new churches and stretch and reach because we say people don't know. Don't you think? Do most of the people in your life know that this is how God is? No, not in my life. How would they know unless they see it in my life? Unless I tell them, I've got to tell you, this is the best news that there ever was. That the two ways to find happiness, which in the end don't, there's another way. The Father invites us home to party at his table. It's a party. That's how we do it. In a few moments, we're going to have an opportunity to take communion together, which really is, is, is an acknowledgment that says, I'm coming home. You know, like it's the elements that represent the fact that Jesus died and gave himself away, left his home to bring us home. And so every time we receive those elements, we're saying, yeah, I'm coming home. This was for me. I'm not going to stand outside. I want to be home. And so, if you've done it a hundred times or a thousand times, do it again. Even when you take it, say, "I'm coming home. This is for me." Maybe you've never taken it, but you're like, "I want that. This is for me. I want to know that this is who God is. I want to. I, I want to receive what Jesus has done for me and come home. I want to leave my life of religion or irreligion, and I want true life in the house of the Father." And then we also have a chance today to give your pledge. And some of you have been praying and preparing to actually figure, okay, what do I want to give to this campaign to try to raise some money so we can have a permanent space? Maybe you're not ready to give yet, or maybe you're totally new. If you're totally new here, we don't expect you to give anything. But this is a celebration time, actually, and one thing you should be excited about is when when you're new to a church, like I remember my first job when I got there, I got to know everybody through the uh, going away parties because everybody was quitting. It it makes you feel weird about the company, right? When you join a company and everyone's quitting. (laughs) Well, I always say, hey, when you're a part of a church, even if you're new, but you see people giving and serving and up here leading and taking steps of faith, even if you're not all the way in yet, you're not sure, it should be exciting for you because like, wow, this is a stable place. This is a place where people actually want to give. People actually want to serve. People actually want to take risks. But here's the thing. On those tables is, in, in case you didn't bring your pledge card or whatever, you can fill that out, put it in an envelope and stick it on that tree. There's pieces of tape. You can do that. But there's also prayer cards. We want you, if you're making a pledge, to write a prayer and just of, of, of either maybe somebody in your life that you say, God, I want this person to come home. Like if I give, I want you to do something way more than just money, it's just money, it's just a building. Is it? Can it save people? No, but the God who works in and through the church can. And so as you give, maybe you want to write a prayer and just say, God, would you do this and stick it in the envelope with you? If you're not ready to give or you're just totally new here, I'd still love you to fill out a prayer card and put it up. Even if you say, I don't even know if I believe in God, but we've all done this thing. God, if you're really there, could you do this? Write one of those down. Say, God, I need you. I don't even know if you're there, but I need you. If you really are like like Jesus says you are, I'm gonna write a prayer. And so, so that every one of us could stick something on that tree. So there's prayer cards up there. There's pledge cards. And then when you're done doing that, you can come and take communion. For those of you that say, yeah, this is for me. This is, I'm coming home. And so Tony's gonna pray for us. Then you're invited to just come down. Feel free to make noise, bump each other. This is a celebration, right? There's two tables over here. There's pens, there's pledge cards. There's whatever you need to fill out. And stick it up on there. And even if you're not ready to give, or you're totally new to this, we'd love it. if You don't have to, but man, if, if you wrote a prayer, like we would love to pray for you. And just to say, God, I want you to do this through whatever you're doing
0: at this church. Um, because if that's who you are, you know, I want in on that. For those of you who maybe don't know me, my name's Malcolm, and I actually have had the the privilege of leading us through this this capital campaign. And as we've been going through it, one of the things that has been really clear to me is it's when we are going through stuff like this that we realize what it means to be a body, to realize that the, no one of us can accomplish um, God's work on our own, but really it that God is inviting us to come together in some way to, again, accomplish his purposes. And so I just wanted to sort of, as we close this service, pray a prayer of blessing over all of you and, and actually over all of us as a congregation for the Lord's favor. So if you just join me in prayer, heavenly father, thank you for your never ending love, for your pursuit to bring us home to you. God, your redeeming work through Jesus has transformed so many lives here in this congregation. Our offerings today are all in praise of you. There are heartfelt thanks acknowledging the inestimable worth of all that we have in you and the hope that, we, that what we give will glorify your name. I pray for each and every person who has and is and will contribute their prayers, their time, and their resources to your kingdom here in Vaughan and the surrounding cities. I would just ask that you would bless us all with an experience of the joy of participating in your work, God. That our hearts would be made more like yours in desiring what you desire and delighting when your will is done. I ask for even greater transformation in our lives through participating in reaching your lost children and that many would receive your incredibly welcoming generous, healing and loving presence. Lord Jesus, I pray that just like the boy who brought you those five loaves and two fishes, that you would take what we have and you'd multiply it and that it would be so much more than enough to accomplish your plans and purposes. And in this I pray for everyone in this congregation that our faith would be strengthened as we see you work with our offerings and know that you use what we have given I pray that each and every person would sense your overwhelming pleasure as you say to them, well done, my good and faithful servant, and that you'd entrust them with even greater influence for the kingdom. Lord, for all those who may even now be unsure how they will meet their commitments as they step out in faith, I pray that you'd bless them in unimaginable ways in response to their generosity. Lord, I ask that you would, as you say in your word, throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there wouldn't almost be room in our lives to store it. God, all our work on this campaign and all our giving is not to build our prestige or make our lives easier. It's to glorify you and it's for your will to be done. I ask that you grant each of us a supernatural anticipation of how you'll use what we are giving and an excitement for what is yet to come. God, we love you, we trust you, and we turn to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen, would you receive that?